with us last week, you know that we read the passage from Colossians 1.24 through Colossians 2.5 again. And the reason being is because we are um, entering into this passage again. We, last week, uh, we discovered that what is maturity, that the maturity is so significant that what it is is that it's surrendering our will, yielding our will to Christ in us who is the hope of glory. So maturity is not only a positional thing, but it's actually something that we grow in. Uh, as we surrender our life to him, yield our life to him, to, to the life that's inside of us, Christ, who is our hope of glory. Uh, we also recognize that the way that we grow in maturity is through community and through the word. Now, today what we're going to be uh, exploring in this same passage is the cost to maturity. Because maturity is the most important thing about you. The, the most important thing that we can engage in this side of glory is to be people, men and women of God, who are mature in Jesus. Dallas Willard says, the most important thing about you is who you are becoming. And so if that's the value that, that the scriptures have placed upon maturity, there's going to be a cost because anything that's worth doing, is, there's going to be a cost to it. And so what is the cost to maturity? We, we have plans. We have blueprints for those things that are most important to us in our life. When we're renovating a house, we put together thought. We put together blueprints before we do the renovation. And when you're thinking about your boyfriend, your girlfriend, the person that you want to marry, you have criteria and you want to work the plan. That's what you do. When you're looking for a job, you have criteria, you have a blueprint for what your life is going to look like so that you have the education that you can acquire in order to do the thing that you feel like God is calling you to do. We are so intentional about every other area in life. The question is, is are we intentional about maturity? Do you have a blueprint for the kind of person that you want to be or the kind of person that God's calling you to be? David Brooks, in his book, says, you follow your desires wherever they take you, and you approve of yourself so long as you are not obviously hurting anyone else. You figure that if the people around you seem to like you, you must be good enough. In the process, you end up slowly turning yourself into something a little less impressive than you had originally hoped. A, humi a humiliating gap opens up between your actual self and your desired self. Can I get an Amen. I don't know why I said that. But there's a gap there. If we're not intentional about who we feel like God's calling us to be, there's going to be a gap between the desired self and the actual self. And the only way that we can close that gap is by taking up the cost of maturity. The cost of maturity. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, again, Colossians 1, 24 through Colossians 2, 5, we're going to see three things. Three things that we have to count the cost in. We need to have a purpose that's bigger than just the self. We're called to contend for community, and thirdly, embrace suffering. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that if our hearts are hard, that by your spirit that you will soften them. That, Lord, if we are distracted, that by your grace that you will focus our eyes, the gaze of our soul, upon the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Holy Spirit, move in this place. It's not going to be with wise or persuasive words, but it's going to be with demonstrations of the Spirit's power in which life transformation takes place. So Lord, we just submit everything to you. We submit our hearts to you. We submit our ears to you as we hear the word. We submit my voice, these words, your words. We submit everything to you, Christ, that you may be glorified. We don't come in strength. We come in weakness. May your name be glorified, King Jesus. Amen.
Okay, the first thing, the first cost is that we need to have a purpose bigger than self. We need to look beyond the borders of our own personal concern. We need to look beyond the borders. And in some ways, uh, our spiritual maturity can match our physical maturity, if you think about it. When you have a nine-month-old, you don't expect them to do certain things. You don't expect a nine-month-old to do the things that an adult does. I mean, an infant does basically three things. They eat, they sleep, and they fill their diaper. That's what they do. We don't go to a nine-month-old and say, you know, I just, you're, just, you're just not pulling your weight. You're not helping out around. You haven't done one dish. You're not helping us. You haven't gone to the store. I mean, what... what, what what are you doing? I mean, we don't expect a nine-month-old to act like an adult. However, we do act, we expect a, an adult to act differently than a nine-month-old. We do expect adult to grow up in maturity. And one of the aspects or facets of an adult is that they have bigger purposes than just themselves. I, growing up, I wondered, like, why isn't there kids day until I became a parent? And I really, like, every day is kids day. <laughs> We need to have Mother's Day because they just pour themselves out on behalf of the other. So much of their life is like living their life for something bigger, something beyond themselves. They have a vision for a border that's beyond the self. Do you have a purpose like that? Do you have a mission like that? Because if we don't, we will die. A characteristic of immaturity is only seeing the self. Francis Schaeffer, in one of his books, he says, if the only vision we have is just for our own personal comfort and effluence, the church is fundamentally dead. And that's true. As soon as a church begins to grow and the focus is on the growth, we die. If a church is healthy and the focus of the church is on the health, we die. The only vibrancy of, of the church is found by Fixing our eyes on Jesus and allowing him to do his work, which means the imitation from, his, from him is to fix our gaze beyond the borders of our own life, to have a mission and a purpose and a vision that is kingdom size. That's the first sign of maturity. You look in the scriptures in Colossians 1, 25, Paul says, I have become its servant. That is the church's servant, the servant, not for my own personal gain. I become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And then 28 and 29, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. His vision, even though he's in jail, is beyond himself. Now, there's two observations about this passage. The first is that we can't have a purpose or a vision beyond ourself unless we understand who is in us. We can't get a vision beyond self if we don't recognize that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. It's not something that we can kind of conjure up and pull our bootstraps up by ourselves. We can't whip ourselves into a frenzy and say, I need to have a vision bigger than self. It doesn't work that way. It's centripetal and then centrifugal. It goes in, there's a radical inness, which is Christ in us, but then there's a radical outness. We, God gives us because of his life in us, his love in us, his joy in us. It sends us out. It causes us to look out. That's what the word, that, that's what the word does in us. That's what Christ's life does in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory, because, glory, because look at 29. Paul says to this end, I strenuously contend with all of his energy, Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in me. Throughout the book of Colossians, it's always Christ in me, in him, in him. I'm found in him. 
it's everything in, in him. Everything is in him. And it's because we are in him that we have a vision that's bigger than just ourselves. James K.A. Smith says, resting in the love of God doesn't squelch ambition. It fuels it with a different fire. I don't have to strive to get God to love me. Rather, because God loves me unconditionally, I'm free to take risks and launch out into the deep. I'm released to aspire to use my gifts in gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. When you've been found, you're free to fail. When you know who you are, when you know whose you are, you're willing to step out, to use and recognize your life, your resources, everything that you have is not ultimately for you. It's for the sake of others. The most mature person is the person who has their eyes fixed out. The concept of spiritual formation, just focusing on me, that's not spiritual formation. There's a, there's a sense of when we are formed more fully in Christ, we are more living our lives for the sake of others. But it's Christ in us, that's where it comes from. But the second observation is, is that he gives us a purpose bigger than just ourselves. Notice, three, it doesn't come out in the NIV, but it is in the original language. Panta anthropos, every one. That's repeated three times, not twice as it has in the NIV, verse 28. He is the one we proclaim and admonish and teaching. I'm sorry. He is the one we proclaim admonishing everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. This brother is in jail. Paul is in a Roman prison cell. And he, and he doesn't complain or moan about his circumstances. His vision is outward towards other people, towards the church, to a people that he hasn't even met. And yet his one ambition is that they may grow up fully mature in Christ. His vision and his purpose is beyond himself. I was thinking about like, how, 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 can, how can I capture, you know, the, who, who in maybe our lifetime or in redemptive history has modeled this? And I thought about William Carey. William Carey, who's the father of modern missions. He's a missionary, was a missionary um, a Baptist missionary to India, and he grew up in a day that was extremely Calvinistic, which basically they said, if, the, if God wants to save the heathen, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need human agency. And William Carey said, uh, the way that God reveals his sovereign purposes and plans is through humanity, which makes his sovereignty even greater because he uses people like us. William Carey, he, uh, he grew up as a shoe cobbler. That was his occupation, at least until before he was a, he was a teacher. But as a, sh a shoe cobbler, he taught himself Hebrew, Dutch, Italian, and French. He took the scraps of leather from making the shoes, and he built a map uh, of the entire world, and he just interceded for the different countries. He wrote during his time as a school teacher a missionary manifesto in which, in part three, he wrote 26 pages of tables listing area, population, and religion statistics for every country in the world. Carey had compiled these figures during his years as a school teacher. He's famously quoted as saying, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. One of his most memorable sermons is on Isaiah chapter 54, 2 and 3. that says, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess the nations and will settle in their desolate cities. He had a vision for the people that did not know Christ in India, and he sacrificed all for the sake of that purpose. Now listen, I, I know you have to pay bills. I know you have to pay your mortgage. You have, we have to live life. But let me ask you, do you have a purpose 
bigger than just going to work and collecting a paycheck. Yes, work is a gift by God and it's fundamentally good in and of itself. But do you go to work with a purpose, with a vision for the people who do not know Christ? Are you interceding on behalf of them? Do you recognize and realize that God has placed you in your workplace for such a time as this to reveal the good news of the gospel? Or do we just go to work and say, oh, ho-hum, this isn't the job that I have? Do you realize that you have been placed in your community, in your neighborhood, that God has put you there, not just to be a neighbor next to other neighbors in which you do neighborly things, but do you realize that God has placed you in that part of the city for such a time as this to reveal the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? For your neighbors, do you have a vision beyond just, you know, getting through life? That's what the first sign of maturity is that we have a purpose bigger than self. Second, contend for community. This is the second cost requirement for maturity. In uh, Colossians chapter two, verses one and two, Paul says, I want, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Notice, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. That's what Paul was contending for. This word contending, the noun for, form is agona, the verb form is agonoismai, we get the word agony from. And it was oftentimes used in a fight within the stadium in which the warrior would exert all energies toward a particular goal or purpose. And that's the word that Paul chooses to use here, that he exerts all of his energy, all of his focus on what? On the purpose of encouraging them to be united in love. He contends for community. He contends for the one anotherness. Robert Mulholland, in his book, Invitation to a Journey, writes, everything that God does, is doing and ever will do in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ is not so that we may someday be set in a display case in heaven as trophies of grace. All God's work to conform us to the image of Christ has as its sole purpose that we might become what God created us to be in relationship with him and in relationship with one another. Do we contend for community? Now, we, we, there's, there's an obstacle that we have living in the culture that we live in because we're an incredibly individualistic society. Mark Sayers, in one of his podcasts, talks about that we've moved from a disciplinary culture to an opportunity culture. That's not the words that he uses. That's what I'm using. But a disciplinary culture says, you should. You should. You should. An opportunity culture says, I could. I could. And we live in a society that believes that we can just absolutely do anything that we want to do, anywhere, anytime, anyhow. We have an opportune culture, and that's the society in which we live in. And the implication of that is there is a, free, there is a fear to overcommit. You know, you've heard of the term FOMO, fear of missing out. There's also FOBO, fear of better opportunities coming your way. That doesn't fit in the acronym. But we not only have FOMO, but we also have FOBO. So we want to keep our options open because we live in an I can culture. Not just I should, but I can. I can do anything I want and I need to have endless opportunities. And so I can't commit over here because what if there's another opportunity that comes its way that is much better for me so that I can commit to this. But not too much because what if you have another opportunity that comes your way that is better than this one. But not too much 
You know, you're continually opening up um, the gates of opportunity just in case something better comes our way. The implication of that is, is that we have endless off-ramps into relationship. We'll be in a relationship for a period of time as long as it's working for us. And then we off-ramp into another opportunity with another relationship, which means that we never go too deep in our commitments with one another. Increased individualism, decreased commitment into community. Friedman says that we, there's, there's skimmers who constantly take from the top without adding any significant, significance to its essence. We just skim from the top of community, taking what we want without staying long enough to add any significance to the essence of community because we don't want to commit too much. The second implication for living in a culture like that is the seduction of scale. Those are his words, seduction of scale. Because everything can be done anywhere, anytime. I can have endless streaming of any show that I want on any device that I want. I can order anything I want, A to Z, at any time that I want, in any place that I want. And with VR, I can go anywhere that I want. Endless opportunities. That's why we live in a culture where there's just paralyzed to commit and therefore a failure to launch. Because what if another opportunity comes my way that is better than the opportunity that I have right now? And the issue is, is that people are being oppressed not with a big no, but with an endless yes. He goes on to say the real issue is not persecution in our day and age, but a seduction to anything and everything. Now that finds its way into the church. We have access today. You, you can download the best communicator that Christendom has ever, you know, in, in this, you can download the best communicator in a podcast. You can listen to the best podcast. You can listen to the best Christian music on Spotify. You can do everything through a podcast. Listen to the best sermon, best music, best whatever. The problem is, is that we are not made as disciples through a podcast, but in the context of a community. That's how we're made disciples. With the CLT team, what they've said is you grow in maturity as you belong in community. As you belong deeper into community, you grow deeper in maturity. As you grow deeper in maturity, you belong deeper in community. They go hand in hand. We can't become mature unless we're willing to contend for community. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, your faith is growing abundantly, okay, maturity, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing, community. You can't have one without the other. You got to have community. In the words of my wife, you got to get your butt in the seat. <laughs> you got to get your butt in the seat to be in community with one another. I, as I look back in this past year, there are two communities that have been most formative for me. The first is our counseling. As Jan and I have gone, see, gone to see somebody, it has just enriched our marriage, but it's also enriched our relationship with Jesus. And you heard some of that last week. The second area that has really enriched my relationship is with our men's group. Now, not every group was like, this is awesome. It was like, it, some, some meetings were, well, that was okay. And some meetings were really great. But you know what? As we logged time with one another, as we sat our butts in the chair in front of one another, over the course of the year, we grew in maturity because we belonged deeper in community. So let me ask you, think about your relationships. Are you more committed to community than you were 12 months ago? Are you more loving? Are you more compassionate, more patient, more understanding, more caring, more giving, more forgiving, less defensive, more empathetic, 
more willing to sacrifice, lay down your life for the sake of the other. So there's the two costs. We're called to have a vision and a mission of purpose beyond ourselves, and we're also to contend for community. The third is to embrace suffering, and that's found in verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, Paul is not saying here that somehow in Christ's death on the cross that he left something insufficient, that the atonement that was accomplished at the cross and through his resurrection, that something was, you know, it wasn't complete. That can't be so because on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. Paul is also not saying here that in order to go to get to salvation, I need to have a certain level of suffering in order to make it into heaven. That's merit-based religion, which is no religion at all, which is not Christianity. So what is Paul saying here? What does he mean that he fills up in his flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction? What he's pointing to is the theme throughout the book of Colossians is in the fact that he has been united to Christ, not only his life and his death, but also his sufferings. He will say in another book, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 17, If we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Being united to Christ in him means we share in his glory, we share in his sufferings. That's what it means. And as we suffer for the cause of Christ, it does two things. First, it reveals to the world the sacrificial love of our Savior. In Philippians 1 Paul says, it's become clear throughout the palace guard that I'm suffering, I'm in these chains for Christ. And so the gospel is going forth. But it also means, as Paul suffers, greater maturity in Christ. He says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, not only so, but we glory or rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that our sufferings produce what? Perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us, because God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, upon those he loves. So suffering produces something. The cost of maturity is that we're willing to embrace suffering. When we come to know Christ and we live according to the values of the kingdom, it will come in direct conflict to the values of what seems most comfortable for us. The values of the kingdom will come in direct conflict to the values of this world. That's why there's hardship, difficulty, and suffering. There's a clash that takes place there. When we live in Christ, there's something that's going to be stirred up within us. And to the extent that we embrace that is the extent that we will grow in maturity. To grow in maturity, we can't circumvent the cross. We go through the cross. (laughs) Ronald Rollheiser says, real transformation of the soul will not happen at Disneyland, but at Calvary. We live in a day and age where we just, we just want everything to resonate with us. We want to just, in a sermon, we want to laugh on one hand and then cry and just, you know. We want to love every song. We just want to have 100% resonance with everybody that we come in contact with. We desire to be in a small group where everybody is just emotionally healthy and secure where everybody is appropriately differentiated and yet bonded within the community. We want, like, everyone to have our same Enneagram number (laughs) and Myers-Briggs profile. We just want to get along with everybody and be in a really cool group. 
But that's not where we grow. That's not how we go from one degree of glory to the next. It's only through the context of suffering. Because as we live in Christ, we live according to his values. And as we live according to his values, they will come in conflict with the values that we had before Christ and the values of this culture. And to walk that path means suffering. It means that we have to embrace suffering. And I, I, am, I, am, I am sympathetic, especially for those that are right now. You have just hit the wall. And everything within you, you just want to chuck the whole thing. You want to give up. But as you've hit the wall, it's not a matter of doing more. It's actually a matter of doing less. Being more present to the Lord who is with you, who has promised that he will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He will be with you. He will not let you go. He will not abandon you. He will not leave you. But will you surrender? Will you yield your life to Christ's life in you, who is the hope of glory? I'm not saying it's easy. Listen, I know that there's people in here who are struggling with deep, deep addictions. And not just addictions that you've picked up two months ago. Addictions that you picked up 20 years ago and you think it's impossible to break. Let me tell you, it is possible in Jesus to break. But it will require suffering. As we talked about last week, when you take off a suit, when you take off that false mask, that is not a journey that is easy. When you move from the false self into the true self, the self that God has, the essential self that God has called you to be, that journey is painful. It is painful. But that's where Christ meets us, is in that place. He meets us when we're at a at our lowest point, the point of most greatest vulnerability, greatest pain, he meets us there. And then he gives us the promise while he meets us there of healing, of empowerment, you know, of blessing, of his grace, of his mercy. That's his promise for us. And it's in that moment that we grow in maturity because we've yielded our will to the life that's inside of us, Christ, who is the hope of glory. So what is the cost of maturity? It means that we have a purpose bigger than self. It means that we're willing to contend for community and embrace suffering. That's the cost. That's the cost. And the promise is, is that we are filled with his fullness. Ooh.